Hi, everyone, and welcome. It's VLGA Connect and time for the weekly governance update. And I'm joined by Stephen Cooper, the Chief of Staff of the VLGA. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, Chris, better for seeing you. Thank you. And likewise, Steve, thank you. <laughs> oh, discussing <laughs> sincerity again. Woohoo. Lots of news around local government this week. Where are we going to start, oh. Steve? Chris, well, you are um, driving this cart, so there's so much to discuss, though. Um, I, I do want to get to a few things that are happening in New South Wales, but we might just park that for the moment because there's quite a bit happening closer to home as well. Now, I, I don't think we need to go into specifics, but um, we've had some incidents or instances recently of councillors uh, getting into a bit of hot water, can I put it that way, and going down some different paths as a result of that. And some questions are starting to come through, Steve, about obligations on councillors when they do perhaps run afoul of the law in other uh, parts of their lives, etc. And, you know, I'm thinking of the councillor that recently was charged with driving offences and chose to resign from that council. There's another councillor that's been charged with offences and has not at this point in time resigned. So understandably, the question from people is, well, you know, what's going on here? What is the obligation on councillors in these situations? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Chris. And there's another um, electoral matter that's under investigation as well. And, uh, and again, uh, no resignation at this stage. And I think um, if I take the first one first, if you like, yep. the... Um, the councillor involved in the driving offences, uh, alcohol-related driving offences, took a decision uh, of that councillor's own volition uh, to resign. And I think in that case, that's a matter and the business of that particular councillor who made that decision. If we go a step further along and say, well, what does, what does the Local Government Act say? And I think it's section 34 or thereabouts. Um, it's worthwhile just to look at the qualification to be a councillor. And we know all of those steps that councillors went through um, at the time of nomination. You've got to be 18 years old, Australian citizen or eligible British subject on the voters' roll. And there are then a series of exclusions, if you like, that would preclude someone from being a councillor, like um, if you're an undischarged bankrupt or you've got a property under administration for bankruptcy. And the other more important one is. Has the, count, has the person been uh, convicted of an offence in the last eight years, which carries a prison term of two years or more? Now, anyone in that situation, I would suggest go and get your legal advice quickly. Um, but that notion of a conviction is important, Chris. Um, that's the trigger in these particular cases that would mandate a resignation immediately. So that, of course, doesn't mean that a councillor can't make their own decision to, uh, if you know, if they feel that it's made their their position untenable for whatever reason, as clearly has happened in in one particular case, to take it upon themselves to step down. But what you're saying is the 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 law very clearly says you need to have been convicted of an offence that carries a two year jail term. Exactly, um, and there's a couple of points out of that, Chris. It's a matter for the individual councillor. It's, um, you know, people are people and might have feelings about things, but if a person is lawfully elected and entitled to sit at the council, then they have that right to, you know, all the rights and obligations attaching to that um, particular role. The other thing, of course, is that, and let's be really clear about this, um, the Act talks about a conviction. So it is possible for someone hypothetically, to be charged with an offence, for the offence to go to court, 
for the person to be found guilty and fined, but to have no conviction recorded, that would mean that they're not disqualified. Um, and there was a case some years ago at the Central Goldfields Shire in regard to a conflict of interest matter where um, the councillor concerned made submissions around a long period of service um, to the council and the magistrate held and, and said at the time that a conviction would be too onerous given the period of service. So it's absolutely at the discretion of the magistrate on, on the guilty finding. Uh, we're barely nine months into a four-year council term and we're getting lots of uh, fodder for discussion, Steve. It doesn't augur well for the next three and a half years, does I'm, it? I'm not seeing uh, us having a week where we do a half-minute episode, Chris, and say we've got nothing to talk about. No, indeed. <laughs> and, of course, um, sitting alongside all of that is this broader cultural review that the Minister has announced in uh, within the sector. Have you got any more insight into um, what that's going to entail? Look, my intelligence, Chris, is that the Department at, or Local Government Victoria are currently finalising um, the consultant's brief. Um, one of the things that will be exercising their minds is how to do a review of culture in a way where it has meaningful findings that are able to be actioned. Because, you know, you know in organisations, just single organisations, if you start just talking about culture, it can kind of take you into all sorts of deep, dark places and you can end up um, not having anything actionable at the end. So I think in that sense, you could reasonably expect that the brief will be quite narrow and I'd anticipate that ultimately it will really need to focus on um, the interactions with the councillor group in each case um, because that is at least... Um, in some sense, it's a closed system. And, you know, it's about time at the top. Indeed. All right. So um, watch this brief. Uh, watch this space, I should say, or keep watching. I'm mixing my metaphors. I love a mixed metaphor. I mean, I think that's right, Chris, because and uh, council laws and councils may, uh, I am presuming, uh, will want to make submissions to that review. So um, commentary about, not individuals, but about the causes of problems and the impacts of culture, I think will be integral to that review. Now, in the absence of the newsroom at the moment, because Catherine Art is taking a well-earned break, I'm going to throw a couple of news items at you, Steve, and see if you've got any comment just to just to make it look like we're keeping up to date, okay? Yeah. So, Burundara, the latest council to uh, scrap library fines, following on from City of Melbourne at the uh, at the announcement of their budget. My intelligence, I've done, done a bit of research on this, uh, Steve, for the for the local government news roundup. I think we're at about halfway in terms of the number of councils, perhaps a bit more, that have uh, scrapped overdue library fines. And it seems that the pandemic has escalated this for some because it's really elevated the value that people um, um, hold their libraries in. Oh, Chris, what a dagger to the heart of that kind of traditional role of councillors with roads, rates, rubbish and library fines. So um, <laughs> I, you're going to be coming back next week and telling me that people are going to be allowed to talk and be noisy in libraries. Surely not. <laughs> I'm not sure we're quite there yet. But um, it, it really is a bit of a vestige of, of the past, isn't it, that's finally starting to give way. But I make the point there are a number of councils that still are imposing fines, uh, overdue borrowing fines on their borrowers. And I don't make any judgment. Look, you know, these are a matter for the decision of each of the councils. And just because someone else doesn't does it doesn't mean everyone has to follow suit. But I 
um, I certainly had read some material when Melbourne made the announcement. There were, there were really sound social and financial reasons uh, to move away from that system of fine increase. And I think we should also make the point, I think most would also hold that if you're a uh, a serial over borrower or you don't return your, your, your books, et cetera, you're going to put your borrowing rights at risk rather than cop fines. Okay, so. Oh, we've got seriously good data analytics these days, Chris. <laughs> yeah, so it's not carte blanche to just take the books and keep no, no, no. No, and uh, there's and always, I mean, there's a whole lot of behavioural science in this too, Chris, and mm. and we know that, um, yes, there's that element, um, the sort of honest mistakes. How do you set up a system that actually just encourages people to do the right thing and see the library as broader than a repository of books, you know, because libraries are community centres that really perform a social a social good. And if we're talking about libraries, I might just plug uh, the Libraries After Dark program that... Um, VLGA and the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation are co-auspicing. It started at Moreland City Council. I think we've got uh, nine or ten councils and a regional library now um, that really points to the importance of libraries as a social gathering place. Indeed. And we talk a bit about that with Shane Lucas on the latest special edition of VLGA Connect. Check that one out. Episode 187, I think. Hey, terrific. I've had some great feedback about that interview, um, Chris. And it's another view of of the role of local governments in community more broadly away from roads, rates and rubbish. So yeah, a good listen. Good point. And I did mention books and of course, libraries are so much more than books as you rightly point out, Steve. Another one that caught my eye, we talked a bit last week about the role that councils can play in advocacy. And I thought it was really, I described it on the podcast as a double, double whammy for Hume City Council. Not only have they had the decision about contaminated spoil from the Westgate Tunnel going to a site in Buller, which they're not happy about. Uh, but they've also uh, learned through the media that the quarantine facility is going to happen at Mickleham, which is, of course, in its patch. I think um, federal governments will make decisions that federal governments make and local communities will expect councils to advocate in the interest of that local community. So... Um, all strengths to Hume City Council uh, in this particular, in both of these processes to actually ensure that someone is speaking for the voice of local community. Um, one thing I probably should have said last week, Chris, of course, is that there are a number of councils that are going through the process now of adopting council plans, um, receiving uh, community visions, and it's probably worth a reminder that advocacy is all the more effective is it if it finds itself somewhere into in the strategy in the council plans, I suppose. Absolutely. Good point. Um, Steve Dubbo, the Dubbo. gift keeps on giving in terms of things to talk about. Uh, oh, the Lord. Dubbo Regional Council is now in uh, possession of a performance improvement order from the minister after that period of time where they had the ability to make a submission back to the minister about about that order. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to read it, but it, it is an interesting read. Uh, it's requiring councillors to give an undertaking that they're going to behave appropriately, effectively, and there's a few other things in there. So just to clarify, Chris, you're saying that the, the, the order requires each councillor to make a declaration that they're going to play nicely. That's correct. Uh, that's one way of, of putting it, yes. Uh, the Minister's raised some concerns in that order and uh, now requires the councillors to give a written undertaking to conduct themselves in a manner that doesn't constitute bullying and harassment of council staff. 
that refrains from action of uh, reprisal against staff for carrying out their functions, um, not to make public statements or allegations of wrongdoing uh, or implying wrongdoing by other by any other council official. And there's a whole range of other things. And she's appointed a temporary um, advisor, which who will effectively monitor compliance with that order and given given them a period of time in which to respond. Uh, You're shaking your head. I'm spe- <laughs> You'll find it hard to believe, Chris. I'm just about speechless. Um, don't we work in an environment where a safe workplace is a right for councillors and officers? Correct. And should be the tone of the way all business is done, including interactions with the community. Um, I, yeah, sorry, I'm gobsmacked. Well, can I can I smack your gob a little bit more? Uh, so you can, <laughs> can you say that? I don't know. I don't know I, if you can say so that. I was just, looking for a way of saying gobsmackingly, but anyway, you keep going. <laughs> uh, also in New South Wales, the minister has um, fired a, a shot across the bow of George's River Council, where some councillors are subject to an ICAC investigation. She's effectively banned them from attending meetings or forums where that matter for which they're under investigation is being discussed, uh, requiring them also to make formal undertakings about preserving the integrity of proper processes. You've got to wonder what's happening in the sector in New South Wales. These, these aren't isolated incidents. There's, there's a little bit more going on with Bathurst in the news in the last couple of days. It's a bit concerning. Uh, Chris, I've always thought it's um, a useful approach whenever there is any action by an integrity agency, by the minister, um, that in those reports, um, people should look at them and say, there's a little bit of us in there as well. Um, there, is, there is seldom a report where you'd say, we are completely immune from the risk in that report. And um, they are really telling reminders, I think, for every council, um, every councillor, uh, every member of staff about what are the risks for us. Um, if I can segue a little, Chris, mm. I did post on my LinkedIn during the week a two and a half minute clip from Simon Sinek, who does a lot of TED Talks and things like that, um, talking about values and behaviours. And I just wonder, you know, the conduct that you've described, the conduct that the minister has acted on in those couple of councils, um, I'll bet those councils have got values of integrity and courtesy and respect and blah, 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 you know, all of that kind of mm. stuff. Yeah, good point. Cynic made the point that that won't cut the mustard. That is a starting point if you're doing a value statement. Can you actually be more specific? So don't talk about a value of integrity. Say, I'll tell the truth. Don't, you know, and this is my words, but don't talk about a value of courtesy and respect. Talk about some words that I'll be kind, I'll be thoughtful, I'll be reflective, like um, really stronger statements that you can actually come back to and um, as organisations hold each other to account to actually meet those behaviours. I actually like that way of thinking. It's, if I can put my spin on that, it sounds like he's advocating taking what's become the, the, the general value statement from being a rather passive statement to more of a personally active statement that each person makes. Absolutely. And let's be clear, that's good business. Organisations that operationalise uh, their values and behaviours weirdly perform better <laughs> so <laughs> you know this isn't some kind of airy fairy conversation to find something that looks good um, at the front page of your annual report 
mm. or a poster in your foyer. This is about good business and it requires really active intervention and understanding about what's the culture of your organisation and how is that driving good, good outcomes for your community. I think that's a good place to wrap that discussion up, Steve. Thanks for that. Now, before we go, um, a quick plug for leading the agenda next week. I, I think we're very close to, and you may know more than me, if not uh, uh, ready to close off uh, registrations because it's an in-person event. I think we must might be just about maxed out, are we? We've got, we've got a cap. As of yesterday, I think there were less than half a dozen vacancies. If it's still on the website, um, get in and register. I, I'm really excited about this, Chris, because we don't talk... We talk often about the role of audit and risk committees, but we don't talk about the dynamics as to how to make them um, effective. And you're hosting a panel with Richard Wilson from Pitcher Partners, Katie Baldwin, who's on the audit and risk committee at Monash City Council, and also the lead internal auditor at CSIRO, which I'd imagine is an organisation that does think a bit about risk. Not only that, but Katie's also worked in the Disney organisation uh I yeah. think Woolworths, um, I had a chat with her the yeah. other day. She's got a fascinating background and is really going to bring, I think, some really interesting um, uh, experience to that discussion. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's not just theme parks at Disney. They also run cruise ships. So really broad experience around risk. And we've got Mark Dupay, CEO at Borbor, who has a long and deep um, interest in this topic. And uh, so all of the three panel members will bring something to the topic. And, of course, we look forward to the audience participation as well. Uh, and that's happening next Friday, the 9th of July at Pitcher Partners in Docklands. As you say, Steve, if it's still on the VLGA uh, events page for registration, you might just sneak in for one of those last available spots. Yeah. And, Chris, I should also add, and I think it's the 15th of July, check our webpage, but we're running an event with LGIU on child-friendly cities. And we've got... 50 registrations. I'll turn it into a competition because I think... We've got 60 about... now as of this morning. <laughs> really? Yes. Well, as it, yeah, and it's probably about 30 each from Australia and UK and Ireland. Right on. So um, I think we need to assert our Antipodean independence and anyone that wants to nominate should jump in on that. It will be interesting. It will. We'll talk more about that perhaps uh, next week. That's a couple of weeks away. Terrific, Steve. Thank you. Lots to cover there. I'm sure there will be again next week, so you better go and have a rest. Oh, can't wait. Thanks, Chris. Steve Cooper, Chief of Staff of the VLGA, with us for the Government's Update here on VLGA Connect. Mm -hmm.